Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Freeform Friday. We got a lot of things to talk about today. So glad that you could join us. Uh, hola, Darren. Good to have you with us. Hey, Warren. Uh, I said you're in the doctor's office waiting for a diagnosis. I pray that the Lord Jesus will grant you favor in that, heal your body, get you back to get back to life. Hey, Andy, Ken, good to have you with us. Anthony, Ron, Lewis, did I miss somebody? I thought I saw another name up there. Edgar, somebody. Anyway, good to have you all with us this morning. It's a great day. A great day here in Colorado Springs. We got some snow uh, falling. We got about three or four inches last night. It's beautiful. Gotta love that. So many great things. And look what's happening here in the U.S. in the Texas border area. <laughs> so you guys know that I've been praying that the Lord would expose the wicked, the, the, the left and all of their agenda. I don't, I, th I don't know how he could do a better job of this. I mean, think about what's happening here, right? We have a, we have a president whose job it is to protect our nation, and he's going to battle with the state governor over uh, letting illegal immigrants in. And it's just, to me, it's, it's so clearly exposing the ludicrous left and what they're doing. Uh, I think it's an answer to prayer, and uh, I think it's great. The Lord is at work. He's on the move. Keep praying. Uh, wherever you are, whatever nation you live in, pray that the Lord would expose the corrupt and replace our leaders that are corrupt with leaders who care about righteousness and justice. And speaking of which, do you all know about Dusty Devers? Have we talked about him before? He's a, a state, uh, I want to say senator in Oklahoma. Uh, I just saw a post here by uh, somebody named John Moody on X, and he listed nine bills that Devers is putting forward in Oklahoma. Catch this. This is, this is a state legislator putting forth these bills in America. Okay. Number one is abolish abortion. There have been other bills like that. That that's, uh, that's not new, but it's, it's good to see it out there again. Number two, false report penalty match the penalty of the crime accused. Talk about justice. If you falsely accuse someone and you are exposed, you are, you are convicted of falsely accusing, then you receive the, uh, the penalty for the crime that you were lying about. That's justice. I like that. Number three, abolish no-fault divorce. Think about what would be different in our nations if you could not simply break your marriage contract because you feel like it. Number four, abolish porn. I'm trying to remember if I can, can recall any politician here in the U.S., that has actually proposed abolishing it. And I think I also saw a report that he was uh, wanting to criminalize or abolish uh, sexting, unless it's with your spouse. <laughs> All right, push this, this is great. Uh, number five, voter oath of accuracy of residency information. So you gotta prove you live in the district or the area you're voting in. 
Number six, prioritizing restitution and sentencing. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to dive into that today. Maybe we'll talk about it some other time, but I do think there's justice in uh, in restitution. You know, this this whole idea of put them in prison. Uh, when you look at the uh, the background of why we do prisons, I think we're missing something. And the idea of restitution makes a lot of sense. We certainly see that all over the old covenant. Uh, number seven, gold and silver standards. So uh, wanting to get our money back on something that has a uh, uh, backing. Number eight, repeal state income tax. Great idea. And number nine, grocery tax relief. So I, I just, the Lord is good and he's at work and we need to be praying for these things. Sorry, I had to face ID my iPad so I could get back over here to uh, to what I wanted to get to. Uh, pray for this. Pray for the Lord to give us just leaders and to expose the ludicrous left. I've been praying it. He's doing it. I'm encouraged. It's good. All right. Um, so you've probably seen the article, the the news about Alistair Begg. Uh, do you all know who Alistair Begg is? I'm assuming that you do. If you happen to be uh, a younger person, maybe that name is not familiar. Back in the 80s, 90s, and so on, uh, when uh, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur were kind of at their peak of uh, influence and popularity in uh, in Christian circles, Alistair Begg was similar in uh, theological persuasion, kind of uh, fit in that Reformed uh, camp. Uh, he never quite reached the same prominence and influence of uh, Sproul and MacArthur and Piper, some of those guys, but uh, was similar. And he would, you know, be part of some of their conferences and things. And as a well-respected pastor, theologian, uh, probably more of a, of a pastor, uh, he spoke, at, did I say that he already spoke at some of those conferences and things, and has been well-respected for decades of just being solid uh, gracious guy, gentle, uh, good communicator. Has is he Scottish? He's got a he's got a great accent. In fact, I think uh, wasn't he in? What, was was he in a movie? I think he had a a, a brief appearance in a, a golf movie. Am I am I remembering correctly that 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 that's Alistair Begg who had that? Anyway, been a uh, maybe somebody can confirm that for me and or one way or the other. Anyway. Uh, a man very, very well-respected for a long time. Well, apparently last week, maybe it was earlier this week, I forget, uh, he's got a, a podcast call in, a, a, he does some Q&A in his podcast, and he's asked by a grandmother if she should attend her... Uh, I. I'm going to get the details wrong probably because I just briefly looked into this. Uh, so forgive me if I get the details wrong. You can look it up. It's readily available online. Uh, but uh, was it her grandson who's becoming a woman? It's a transgender grandchild. And Alistair Begg was asked whether the grandmother should go to the wedding. And Begg essentially said, yes, if, if if your grandchild knows your view on this 
transition you're undergoing and so on, then yes, you should go. Uh, and the concern seemed to be on uh, Pastor Begg's side to not give the grandchild more reason to think that she's hateful and unkind and you know that kind of thing. So, so basically, yes, go to the wedding, support this showing love and kindness and grace uh, to preserve the relationship. Is that fair? Uh, anybody who's more familiar with the actual details than I am, uh, if you want to improve upon my summary, feel free to do it there in the chat. So uh, there's been some, you know, some Twitter turmoil, some uh, uh, conversation about this, some grabbing onto that saying, woohoo, amen, that's great. And then others, of course, uh, saying, no, no, that's awful advice. So I want to do two things here this morning. I want to, or afternoon for Rob, um, I want to speak to the issue of attending the wedding. And then I want to come back and talk a little bit about how do we respond to someone like an Alistair Begg. So uh, first, the issue itself. I don't see any biblical warrant at all for attending this wedding. Uh, number one, I would say it's not a wedding. I believe the scripture is clear that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's it. And so anything that is not a man and a woman is not actually a marriage in God's eyes. And God is the only one that matters. Uh, I kind of wish the uh, governments would stay out of marriage altogether because this is something God created. Man didn't create this. Uh, uh, governments didn't create this. There's a role for governments to play because marriage is a contract. There's a, you know, it's a covenant. We'll come back to that in a minute. There's a role for governments to play in keeping uh, people from defrauding someone they are in con in a contract with and if you uh, so I, I think there's a role play but I, I you know it's, it's a Christian thing it's it's a God thing it's not a it's not a governmental thing um, so I I it's not even a wedding number one number two because I'm persuaded that marriage is a covenant. When you think about covenants in the Bible, there are almost always witnesses to the covenant making. And certainly when it's a bilateral, when it's, when it's two parties coming together and there are requirements of both of them, uh, then there are witnesses to hold each party accountable. We see a lot of these covenants in the Bible. The most uh, obvious one maybe is the uh, Mosaic covenant or the covenant between God and Israel. And in this covenant, there are stipulations, right? God stipulates, he vows to bless Israel, to protect her and so on. And the stipulations, the vows that Israel makes to God are those 10 words and, and the law. Right. Uh, this is why, by the way, uh, when you got married, uh, if you are ever the uh, uh, 
officiant of a wedding, as I have been many, many, many times, uh, and I, I tell couples all the time when we, when we do premarital counseling with them, uh, you can design the service kind of however you want. If you want to add these elements like the unity candle and music, and all, that's great. The only thing that matters to God, in my opinion, is the vow, the vows, because you are both taking vows before God, stipulating in your covenant, your contract, what you will do. And I think the vows should not be things like, uh, I promise to live life together with you, enjoy and, and uh, have happy time. You know, it, no, you're, you're actually committing to doing what the scripture calls us to do. If you want more of this, uh, you can read my book, Shameless plug here. God's designed for marriage. There's a pre-married version, the blue one, and there's a married version, uh, red one. Anyway, I talk about marriage there and then get into the roles of husbands and wife and so on. Anyway, so covenant-making ceremonies in the scripture have witnesses. When you attend a wedding, you are serving as witnesses to this covenant-making. When I do weddings, I tell the congregation, you are not here as spectators. You're not here as family. You're not here just to celebrate. That comes later in the, in the reception. Here, you are witnessing two people taking vows before God to one another. And I challenge the congregation and say, you are obligated from this point forward, if you see either party failing to keep their vows, you have responsibility to call them out and remind them that I was there that day when you said you'd be faithful to her. I was there that day when you said you would submit to him. That's the, that's the role of the congregation to bear witness to the covenant making. There was a, it used to be practice and uh, I don't see it much anymore. And I've, I've never included this, but there used to be a practice of, you know, uh, asking the congregation, does anybody here have uh, a reason why this two should not get married. And that was a witnessing role and a, and a responsibility there to say, no, as far as we're concerned, these two are eligible. So when you attend a wedding, you are witnessing it and by implication, giving your blessing to it. So how can a Christian encourage and celebrate and give their stamp of approval to a perversity. It can't, it shouldn't be done. And how can you bear witness to a covenant that God says is an abomination? So if you're wondering, notice the difference between that and going to a birthday party. I think the grandmother could absolutely and should go to the birthday party of her transgender grandchild because there's nothing contrary to the scripture to have a birthday. And talk that's a way to show love and kindness. Treat, treat the person with grace and celebrate what you can. You can say, you know, Give them birthday presents. There's nothing sinful about that. But a wedding is different. And this, by the way, applies to several different scenarios. You realize that for two unbelievers to get married is a good thing. 
but for a believer to marry an unbeliever is not a good thing. Should we support a believer marrying an unbeliever if the scripture forbids it? I don't think so. But the scripture does not forbid two unbelievers getting married. So anyway, that could go down to different paths. Just give that some thought. But here, the, the fundamental, fundamental reason why I think Alistair Begg gave wrong advice, poor advice, is because I believe that by being there, you're bearing witness to this and giving your endorsement of this marriage. And I don't think we can do that unless it's a, a man and woman being married. So that leads to the question, you know, how do we respond to Pastor Beg? I think he gave some pretty bad advice. He's got a huge audience and uh, he's going to cause some people probably to sin or at least in their judgment. But that's not the sum total of his leadership. Think about the Apostle Peter. Okay, we know what he was like before the resurrection. He was brash and bold and impetuous and told Jesus he would give his life for him. And then, you know, a few hours later, he's denying he even knows Jesus. Three times he does it. That's a big fail. That's a big time fail. After the resurrection, the Spirit fills him. He's such a great leader in the early church. Strong, bold. Uh, he, was, he was one of the apostles and the leaders uh, in the early church. But you remember what Paul said to the Galatians? That Peter withdrew from eating with the Gentile converts? And Paul had to call him out and condemn him before everybody because the gospel was at stake in that action? That is a serious error by a man who walked with Jesus, who was a leader among the apostles, a leader in the early church, filled with the Spirit, wrote part of the scripture, uh, stood boldly against persecution and error and so on, but he committed a pretty significant failure as a Christian leader. So much so that Paul had to call him out publicly and condemn him. Do we disregard everything else Peter did? Do we throw out his letters and say clearly what he taught was not true and not worth? No, he was a man who made a mistake. I think Paul may have made a mistake in Jerusalem when he took the vow and acted like a Jew in Jerusalem there. I may be wrong about that, but just what, how it reads to me. I think Beg needs to be corrected. I hope, some, I hope he's got some people around him who will correct him. And I hope he changed his mind. But as Christians, we need to think through this and realize even serious error doesn't destroy everything. We have this... Um, we have this default setting, it seems, for instance, that pastors who uh, commit adultery are forbidden forever from being in the ministry. Where's our biblical warrant for that? Uh, it, I mean, I've heard people say so. I've, heard, I've had this discussion with, other, with pastors and elders. like So I could kill somebody. I could murder somebody. And then 20 years later, if I've repented and 
proven myself I could be an elder, but if I committed adultery, I couldn't. And I don't want to go down that path here and have that conversation right now. I just, I want us to think through, you know me, I always want to come back to the text. And does the scripture rule out a leader for that particular sin? Does it undo everything they've ever done? Now, don't get me wrong. There would be a time for sure of uh, true repentance, bearing fruit of repentance, uh, restoration. And I'm not, I'm not giving a blanket endorsement that um, adulterous leaders should be put back in office either. I'm just saying we need to think these things through, read the scripture together, and don't go beyond what is written and realize the church leaders that we know, like Peter and others, committed serious errors. And yet the Lord put them in positions of influence. So be careful about overreacting to beg. So that there's the issue that I think he's wrong on, and we need to think this through and be right about it and give better counsel than he gave there, but also realize that uh, this doesn't ruin everything Alistair Begg has ever done. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with that? Uh, Andy says, government should honor and encourage marriage. It's good for society and the community. I agree, but they shouldn't define what marriage is, and we shouldn't have allowed them to take control where they can uh, decide those things. Oink says, honest question, Doug. I can see all these laws as things grounded in scripture, some in old covenant law. How do you view this as a new covenant theologian? Where's the disconnect with theonomy for you? Um, yeah, I'm not a theonomist, and I don't think we go searching through the old covenant to find how we should legislate in a nation today. Uh, but I think there are principles of justice. As I, as I read the list there of Deavers, to me, they all seem just, not because they're in the scripture or the Old Testament, Old Covenant, just they seem just to me and, and right. And fairness is, is good and right. Uh, I, think we can, I think we can read the Old Covenant laws and say, okay, why did God give those laws? Uh, is there an element here of uh, justice, uh, fairness, that kind of thing? Um, and maybe use it as a, as something to think about. But at the end of the day, that's not where I'm, I'm going. Uh, is it, is no default divorce a good thing? Is it just for the, the two who are getting married? I would say no, because the one who doesn't want the divorce, uh, is, is it's unjust for that person. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know you're talking about the, the Deaver stuff and so am I. Um, so I'm not a theonomist. I'm not looking to go back to the old covenant and bring those forward. I alluded to, uh, to some of the, the laws that are similar in the old covenant, but at the end of the day, I'm looking for righteousness and justice. What's fair, what role should the government be playing? And, uh, and I like Deaver's recommendations, not because they are tied to the old covenant in any way. All right, uh, a couple of things I want to talk about as our time is flipping by here. Changing gears. Uh, so I saw uh, another, I don't know, post somewhere recently about uh, family liturgy. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's been a push for, for a while here for fathers 
to act like pastors of their families. They are sometimes they're even referred to as pastors of their families and how important it is to have family worship, family liturgy. And so you, you take what happens on Sunday morning and the father brings that home and does it the other six days of the week. And so you have a little Bible study, you sing some songs, pray, that kind of thing, where you create a little mini church service at home. And obviously, you know me well enough to know that I have argued there's no such thing as a church service in the scripture anyway. And I don't think there's anything wrong with quote unquote family liturgy. Don't like the, don't like the label, but uh, certainly fathers should be uh, leading their families. But I just want to encourage you if you are a father with children in the home, far more important than quote unquote family liturgy is teaching them, teaching them, teaching them wisdom, teaching them what is right and what is wrong, leading by example, of course, far more important. We, we, we are not commanded by the Lord Jesus to have family devotions, to have family worship, family liturgy. We are commanded as fathers to raise our children in fear and admonition of the Lord Jesus. And there's a temptation to think, you know, check the box, think that we are doing our job as fathers if we lead them in a song, pray with them before they go to bed, read a little section out of the Bible or a devotional or something. That's not where it's at. Boys, especially, but boys and girls need a father who is actively teaching and diving into every aspect of life. How many things in the world, in the universe, is Jesus Lord over? Jesus is Lord over all things, right? That means there is nothing in your child's life that Jesus is not king of. Therefore, to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord means you dive into everything and you teach them. It matters what Jesus thinks. You want to obey Jesus in everything. That is far more important than the family liturgy stuff. Sing, sing songs. That's great. Of course. Pray with them before they go to bed. That's great. Uh, Certainly not downplaying any of that or suggesting you don't do it. But I'm just concerned that we don't check the box and think, all right, I have this little routine, just like we do on Sundays. So many people go, go to our church service and check the box. We went to church and then the rest of the, the rest of the week is, is, we don't know what it is sometimes. So anyway, fathers, I just want to exhort you. It's hard work, but we've got to raise up the next generation of Christians and family liturgy is not going to do that. Got to teach, got to walk in wisdom, got to talk about things uh, that are wise and unwise. Politics, the stuff I'm talking about now, you got to walk your kids through this. You need to have these discussions because they are absolutely going to encounter somebody in your family or a friend, uh, in friend's family, someone who's you know, transgender getting married or uh, same-sex getting married. 
you need to have these discussions ongoing and make sure that you present yourself as the go-to person to raise the question with, even if you don't have the answer. You figure it out, you find it, but you want them coming to you. And I know plenty of fathers who lead their families through family liturgy, but never engage in these kind of conversations and their kids show they bear the fruit of having fathers who are not um, truly raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but they do have their, their rituals, their sacramental approach to things. Which leads me to the final topic. Uh, have you seen Boys in the Boat? You need to see the movie The Boys in the Boat. I took my wife out uh, the other night to watch that, and I'd heard it was good. Oh, I loved it. Uh, I was shocked to see that George Clooney was directing it. I don't know why. That surprised me. But I, I must admit, as soon as I saw that, I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> where's this heading? He did a great job. And it fits this this theme. Um, it seems to me, and I'd be curious uh, if anybody has a different impression, but it sure seems to me like in this movie, the men were men. The women were women. And he told the story. It's a great story. I won't give it away here. Uh, it's a great story based on a, a really what happened in the 1930s. But I, I think the things that impressed me so much were he didn't go, Clooney didn't go out of his way to uh, harp on, you know, the woke agenda, whatever. It was men were men and they were treated like men. And they, it, it was expected that they would have courage and that they would handle the hard things of life. I mean, one of the characters, he has it rough. And they didn't pity him. They didn't excuse his, uh, his poor response to it. Uh, there were some older, wiser men that held him to account. He had to confront some of the, uh, the, the things that put him in a hard position. I'm, I'm trying to be vague so I don't give it away. Uh, he had to confront that. And boy, they just portrayed him confronting it really well. Not in some sort of a Freudian, uh, psychological, self-pitying, any of that. It was, no, yep, this is the hand you were dealt. And it's not a good hand. But you have to play this hand. And you can mope about what you don't have and you can get mad and angry at everybody else or you can just play the hand and see where it goes. And I love that. And again, the women, the way the women were portrayed, were, were it was really great. There, uh, Clooney passed up on a couple of very obvious uh, places for gratuitous sex. That There was, there was innuendo. There was, um, everybody kind of suspected what was happening, but there was no need. He, he, he did it in a, I mean, this is reality. This is life. This was life then. Um, uh, it was just, it was just right. It was, it was, it made me think good movies can be made. And the response has been fantastic at the box office. I hope this takes us down a path where more movies like this are made. It, it was really refreshing. I, I would encourage you. I'll even say this. There was a little bit of profanity in it and I think it fit. I, I think it was 
this is this makes sound horrible to some of you. I think it was appropriate. <laughs> I mean, maybe I maybe maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe there's no appropriate place for profanity, but it 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 wasn't gratuitous. I put it this way: that in the situation for some strong language there, I I, I kind of get it. So anyway, uh, Andy says thanks for the movie recommendation. We have been on the fence about seeing it. I I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it, uh, and I think you'll. Uh, it's a good movie. I, I, I recommend. I don't recommend movies very often. So anyway, I give that to you. Uh, let me come back to one more thing Oink said, and then uh, we'll call it a day. So the Old Testament is fair, but we should learn from it, but not copy and paste it in the modern law. Did I get that right? Uh, yeah. I, you know, it's always, we always have to be careful reading the Old Covenant law because it was not given at the end of the day to... Uh, um, how do I say this carefully? It's not as simple as saying, oh, it's God's law, therefore it must be what is right and just. Obvious example, eating pork. Right? It was a law in the Old Covenant that the Jews could not eat pork. We don't draw from that that eating pork is inherently sinful in God's eyes because God said at the beginning of giving the law to Israel, I'm going to give them this law to test them to see if they will obey me. So knowing that it was a test laid out there for the Jews, we must be careful not to simply go to it and say, oh, God hates pork eating. Because we know that's not true. And this is where the uh, Reformed guys, going back to Thomas Aquinas, will say, yeah, of course, that was ceremonial law, and then we got the civil law, but the moral law is objectively offensive to God. And then you say, well, what about the Sabbath? Well, no, the Sabbath is, is, is a clearly part of moral law. Well, then why is it on the first day? Because God said do it on the seventh day, right? So it, you just cannot be consistent. You, you, you're, a for, you're forcing the law into your system. So I, I don't think we're supposed to look at the old covenant law as just, yes, cut and paste and say, this clearly is what's offensive to God. However, when you look at the, the, the ways of treating each other in the Old Covenant law, it does, at least for me, makes me ask the question, okay, is there something unjust about that action and can I learn something about justice and righteousness from it? But I wouldn't use that as the final arbiter on whether or not anybody should act this way because that was not the purpose of the Old Covenant law. Um, at the end of the day, I believe... We have to look to the New Covenant scriptures and the Spirit revealing to us, teaching us what is right, what is wrong. So it's not it's not a cut and dry, cut and paste uh, situation at all. Um, and that's why there's diverse opinions, and we we need to be humble about this. Um, so I'm I know that's I don't know if you want a more concise answer. I don't know how to give a more concise answer because I think it requires wisdom and the situation on how to make laws for others, for the nations, it's not as simple as, oh, here's this verse. I don't think every sin should be a crime, for example. So again, it requires wisdom and discussion and that kind of thing. But I believe it can be found, and I am praying constantly for the Lord to provide us leaders who will care about righteousness and justice, whether they're Christians or not. So, all right, uh, I'm going to call it a day there. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll come back and see each other on Monday as we get back into Romans. God bless.